You're listening to the Unlocking Africa podcast. So now I'm an economist and I focus on supporting African economic development, supporting governments and their partners, as you rightly said, in areas like modern industrial policy. It needs to be the private sector that is adding value, investing in local human capital by creating jobs. How do you coordinate the different arms of government to steer the private sector to sectors and products that empower people? The main feature that is common across these countries is that industrial policy was a tool of coordination recognizing that Africa is where the future growth of the world's population and income is going to come from. Stay tuned as we bring you inspiring people who are unlocking Africa's economic potential. You're listening to the Unlocking Africa podcast with your host, Tessa Adamu. Welcome to the Unlocking Africa podcast, where we find inspirational people who are doing inspirational things to unlock Africa's economic potential. Today, we have Jonathan Side, who is an economist and has vast experience supporting African governments and their partners to implement modern industrial policies for job creation and inclusive and sustainable growth. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Tessa. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. Thank you for joining us. So where are you today? I'm in the United States, in Iowa, where I live. So how's everything going so far this week? It's going well. It's going well. Fairly fairly productive, which is always a good sign. Brilliant, brilliant. That's great to hear. So as I said, thank you for joining us on the podcast. I'm not sure if you've listened to the podcast before. I usually like to start from the beginning, so I was hoping you could introduce yourself and tell us a bit more about Jonathan's side. Sure, absolutely. Um, so I'm uh, born and grew up in Malta, which is a tiny island in the middle of the Mediterranean between Europe and Africa. I got very interested in my formative years in areas like geography, um, areas like history, areas like economics, and really understanding why there's this uh, big factory down the road from where I grew up. How did it get there? Why is it there and not somewhere else? And asking these types of questions, both within my country and then other countries in the region and beyond. Um, so I decided to study uh, economics. My father and grandfather wanted me to do accountancy. So I did some of that as well, but then kept looking okay. more, more towards the economics as time went on to really try and understand the world better and how the world's uh, resources are distributed. Um, I got particularly interested also in the issue of equality, poverty as well quite a bit. And so the economics was a way to sort of try to understand the drivers behind that um, as much as I could. Um, so now I'm an economist and I, I focus on supporting African economic development, supporting governments and their partners, as you rightly said, in areas like modern industrial policy. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So you've given us great insight into your background in education and introduction into economics, equality and politics. They were areas that you were quite interested in. So as you mentioned, majority of your work focuses on African economies. So I was wondering how did this come about and what was your journey into the world of African economies or African economics? Yeah, so with my interest in those areas I mentioned before, I started doing some social work on the side of when I was at university and a bit before in my high school. 
with people in need. That was both in Malta, in neighboring Sicily, where I went there for a number of summers to support the organization of summer schools in a deprived area of Palermo, the main city there. And also did some similar work in India as well at the time. And that sort of those experiences really shaped me and made me much more interested in understanding from the human and social aspects, the challenges of poverty, of destitution, of people who are homeless, orphans and, and you know children having to grow up in difficult circumstances with broken families or in institutes and things like that. And so off the back of that, I really got interested then in global inequality issues. And also given where I'm from on the sort of border between Africa and Europe, um, my surname comes from North Africa. Um, so my ancestors originally some came from North Africa as well, really got interested in Africa as a continent and understanding why it's not as rich as Europe and the countries to the north of where I grew up. Um, and so really started to dive more and more into that. Um, and so when I started working in economics, initially I started working in the United Kingdom because that's where I did my master's and then I stayed on there. But as I was working on the United Kingdom, I felt a bit of a, a gap and a yearning to really support countries where people are suffering more and uh, have less opportunity, uh, less economic opportunity. People are living more in poverty and struggling more than potentially in higher income countries. And so off the back of that, I then joined the Overseas Development Fellowship, which posted me to work originally in South America, um, in Guyana. And I spent two years there working inside the government. And that was a great experience for me. Um, but then after that, I really wanted to build my experience and exposure in Africa. I'd read a lot of books about the continent, but very interested in it, uh, which were different programs on it and and so on. And so I wanted to build my experience there. And so then I, I I reached out to the economics consultancies I knew of, I found on the internet, uh, maybe about 50 or so of them and just asked if I could have a job there. And one of them out of the 50 responded. And so I uh, went over to to Malawi. And that was a great experience. And likewise, I ended up working through this consultancy. I ended up working in the government for three years as a, as a seconded technical assistant. And then um, things kicked off from there, really. Awesome. Awesome. So have you spent much time in Africa outside of your time in Malawi? Yes, in total, I've lived there for about eight years um, between Malawi, spent three and a half years in uh, in Liberia as well. And then a few other places, shorter amounts of time, like Tanzania, and uh, so that totals to about eight years living there, but also various travels as well. Also, when I was at university, my holidays were in Africa, um, which was not normal for people growing up in Europe. But that was my, um, me and with a couple of friends, we would go and explore a few different countries uh, traveling around as well. That's when I was in my early 20s. But then, yeah, eight years living there and working there. Brilliant. So it's clear you've spent a lot of time in Africa and a lot of your professional career has been focused on the continent and I guess with that you've generated some interesting pieces of work and one that sparked my interest was an article that you wrote detailing that many African nations have missed out on the most important economic policy of them all which is export oriented industrial policies. Can you tell us what you mean by that? So by this I mean basically um Efforts by the government to facilitate private sector, and we know that it's ultimately private sector on which economies are built, uh, but it needs to be the private sector that is adding value, investing in local human capital by creating jobs, by skills development and professional development for its workers, by procuring its inputs from other local SMEs, 
Uh, it's things like that where economies can really grow and transform and allow for the population en masse to prosper, to escape poverty and to prosper. And when you look at the countries that have developed, and that extends from the United States to Germany to France, and then examples like Chile and Israel and Costa Rica and Vietnam and Japan, South Korea, there's quite a long list of them. The common feature they had was this this tool, this industrial policy tool. They used it in a way to basically steer the government to do the things it needed to do and coordinate the government, because the government is not one entity. It's it's typically a hundred different agencies and ministries, each each basically being a separate organization in effect. So it's how do you coordinate the different arms of government to um, steer the private sector to sectors and products that empower people and that open up the space for other firms and other private sector rather than closing up the space so that only that 1% or 10% benefit, but the rest don't. So steer the private sector and then also facilitate the private sector and support it to remove bottlenecks where the government might be getting in the way of more investment and more job creating growth. So the policy tool that was used is industrial policy. There have been many examples of it being used badly, um, but that's the same for monetary policy, fiscal policy, land policy, energy policy. All of these can be done well or they can be done badly. But in effect, what is important here is that the countries that have been able to build economies that are inclusive, that empower the majority or the vast majority of the population rather than just a minority. They've been able to coordinate government to steer the private sector and unlock the power of the private sector to create jobs, to innovate, to drive that dynamism. Um, Some of it, of course, exists there in spite of government, um, this dynamism in the private sector, but sometimes it's too constrained to empower the entire nation. And so transitioning from just a narrow enclave of that dynamism to an entire nation being empowered requires government to play ball. And the tool it needs to do that is industrial policy. And when I say export-oriented, it's that in the past, some of the mistakes have been more where industrial policy has been focused on protectionism and import substitution, you call it, right? Trying to block out imports to protect local industries. But that's been highly problematic for well-known reasons. So it's mostly about being an industrial policy which promotes trade rather than uh, tries to reduce trade. Fantastic. So you've detailed a few global economies that have successfully implemented export-oriented industrial policy. So it could be said that industrial policy has essentially been missing for the past 40 years in African countries. Why is that? Yes, I think that has been the case. Um, because if you look at, you know, there was there was some good industrial policy post-independence in the 60s. Many African leaders from Nkrumah to, you know, to Ufeboni in Cote d'Ivoire, various actually implemented such a policy. They did coordinate, they you know, secured private investment um, and coordinated the government or not private investment. But because of all the macroeconomic challenges that countries faced in the 70s in particular, uh, and various management issues as well, uh, and political issues, needless to say, as well, uh, succession politics and things like that, then countries struggled, right? The death rows, et cetera. And that did lead to interventions by the the Washington-based institutions who were 
my view, geopolitical reasons, although there were also technical arguments, were not sort of that keen on these types of, uh, on the use of this. And industrial policy became a sort of word that uh, should not be spoken. It became a bad word because it was sort of was related to some import substitution types of mistakes um, that I mentioned before, but also for geopolitical reasons as well. Um, and basically, uh, you know, an underlying unsaid preference for rich countries to extract raw resources from poorer countries and 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 therefore not too keen on the economic empowerment and transformation of of, of lower income countries um so in the relationships which poorer countries had with the IMF the World Bank with various creditors it was something which was not really on the table so much and so the whole cadre of people in african governments economists if you look at the think tanks if you look at the ministries of finance it's not something which was developed since the 70s and 80s as a core discipline in the same way that an understanding of public financial management was or um, monetary policy was for example so you mentioned that in the past there were export-oriented industrial policy in countries such as Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire. So if we look at the present, how should African governments go about implementing these export-led industrial policies? Well, I think the main thing and the main the main lesson that we've learned both in the continent, and there are positive examples, despite what I said before, the majority of countries have not really put in place such policies there are some that have, right? So you can, there's countries like Morocco, there's countries like Ethiopia most recently, um, Botswana, Mauritius. You can really learn lessons from those types of countries. Tunisia before, though now it's the past 10 years, it's taken its foot off the pedal given its political instability. Egypt to some extent as well. Um, you can learn from those countries and then those other countries outside of the continent that I mentioned before, even countries like Bangladesh, Cambodia, Vietnam, etc. The main feature that is common across these countries is that industrial policy was a tool of coordination. It was one of facilitating the relationship between governments and, in inverted commas, the right type of private sector. And there's always relationships between the government and the private sector. But the problem is, in many countries, that's more of an extractive relationship, right? It's more in, in many low-income countries where it's more about extracting raw resources, um, exporting resources in a real raw form, or it's about preferential positions in the marketplace, particularly related to imports, right? Who's dominating the imports of fish into the country or the imports of dairy products, which are, you know, where you can make a lot of money if you dominate that position. And so you need some form of deal with the government to give you a preferential license. That's typically how the relationship between the private sector and government has been, for the most part, in many countries. So to shift that, you need a mechanism to coordinate um, with the private sector that's investing in value addition, investing in sectors that create jobs and that open the space for other SMEs to flourish and other investors to enter. So there isn't a simple set of policies or governments you should do A, B, C, D. It's more about the process and the way the way that government relates to the private sector um, and listens to investors and, and private sector that are in sectors that can unlock the economy and then fix bottlenecks, right? To say, okay, we are struggling with these three things. We don't have proper access to electricity. The electricity is too expensive or too intermittent, so we have to rely on generators. We're struggling to get through customs. The you know We need to import these bottles as part of our packaging pro for our product. And you're, ch and you're charging us 100% tariffs on these. 
and you are also making it really hard, giving us the runaround to meet standards and 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 so on between different ministries to get the permission to import these bottles for our packaging. So it's the private sector listing things like that, and then the government being able to coordinate itself and respond to fix those problems, not just for those firms and those sectors. We do it for those firms and those sectors, but in doing it for those firms and sectors, you're also implicitly doing it for others as well. So the main successful features where government can coordinate itself. And you remember, as I mentioned before, it's it's not just one ministry that can do this. Energy is controlled by the Ministry of Energy and the Energy Utility. Land is Ministry of Land. Um, um, customs falls under the Revenue Authority. Skills issues fall under Ministry of Labor or the, the Ministry of Education and the Tertiary Vocation Agencies. So it's different parts of government need to come together. And so what industrial policy does is allow you to say, okay, these are the sectors that can really transform our country and empower our people. These are the bottlenecks that the private sector in those sectors are telling us are really causing them problems. And then these are which government agencies need to do what to address those challenges. So that's how it has typically worked and how it's been successful is when it's been done in that way. So you've given us a comprehensive approach in terms of how African governments can go about implementing such policies. So from your experience or research, are there any African governments that have recently successfully implemented export-led industrial policies? Uh, yes, there are. Um, the most recent examples are some of the ones I mentioned. So Morocco is a really good example to look at, um, whether it comes to agriculture, manufacturing and the services sector. They've done really well um, um, from you know citrus and olives, uh, uh, fruits through to car manufacturing, through to uh, you know tourism and financial services. Um, they really have sort of been very clear on what their strategy is. And have been quite consistent in um, bringing in people into government that understand both the private sector business side of things, um, but also understand the public uh, developmental vision of the country and understand the importance that these types of sectors like agriculture, manufacturing and services play in the country and meeting its developmental ambition. So that's a really good one to look at. Others Ethiopia, the last three, four years, of course, with the with the war in Tigray, things have fallen a bit back. But before that, it really did have a very strong focus on this and with, with a number of successes in areas like pharmaceuticals and textiles, which started from scratch, basically, from a very low base, um, um, and agriculture as well. Um, Mauritius is a very good example, um, Botswana, as I mentioned before. But you can also look at other countries um, that have been doing better in re- more recent years than these ones I mentioned. So examples would be Senegal, uh, Ghana as well has been doing very well uh, in more, more recent years. Cote d'Ivoire itself, for example, Cote d'Ivoire has become the world's biggest producer of cashew nuts in yes. just 20, 30 years. It was a very low player just in the 90s. Um, it did have some cashew production. It was very low, but now it's the world's leader in production and it's making headway into processing, which is a very tough market to compete with, with Vietnam and India. Um, there's also other examples like in smaller countries too. Togo, for example, is doing well in some areas like call centers um, and also processing of agriculture. Rwanda, of course, is a well-known example. There's quite a lot um, um, out there that you can look at 
Um, even countries like Benin is most recently really has become Africa's leader in cotton production, and it's done quite a lot to to in the uh, to 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 grow its cotton base. So there's quite a lot of positive cases um, that are increasingly emerging across the continent. Thank you for that, Jonathan. You touched upon this during our conversation, but an element of export-led industrial policies is about, I guess, value addition to products or commodities. So I just wanted to know from your perspective, what is the importance of value addition for African economies? It's critical. It's central. So basically, without value addition, there is no... um, you know, Africa's vision, if you take the African Union, you know, 2063 vision cannot be ever met. The SDGs cannot be met, right? For all the talk of, you know, I care about SDG 3, I care about SDG 7, or whatever you pick, none of them can really be met without value addition. And the reason for that is because without value addition, you cannot create enough household income on a national scale. And you cannot create enough tax revenue for the government and you cannot create enough growth in net exports. So in a way where you're where you're not constantly facing forex crises and also debt crises, as we are seeing now in countries like Zambia and, and, and Angola and, and Ghana and so on. Value addition is what allows you to really build an economy based on human capital, where entrepreneurs are rewarded, where people can find jobs. People can slowly make progress in improving their household incomes. They can escape the poverty trap um, where you basically, as a household, you're never able to save because everything you earn, whether it's your subsistence farm that gives you your cassava or your maize or your rice, you basically eat it and then you, you have nothing left over for savings or for investing in your child's education or in healthcare. You're basically stuck in that trap, whether you're an individual or whether your government is the same. And many governments are also st- uh, stuck in that trap, where, and that's why the debt crisis then comes from. So value addition is critical to unlocking the power of firm capability, we call it, basically building private sector capacity, proper firms that can really create jobs and widen the tax base so that the government can then you know, develop a proper welfare system, um, proper healthcare, proper education, security, etc., um, without the pressure on on households and the pressure on governments from the consumption side is just too big for the revenue side to keep up, so to speak. If we think of it as a business, right? In a sense, you need your revenues to be in your expenditure. So, so it's what will allow those revenues to rise above the expenditure such that you can have savings over time. And that's what really uh, allows countries to flourish and to prosper. Otherwise, you're stuck in a, a low-income trap and a poverty trap. So you've detailed the importance of value addition, which I agree 100%. But many people would argue that it's sometimes in the interest of more developed nations or high-income countries to maintain an extractive and import-based relationship with African nations, which effectively restricts African countries from adding value to exports. What are your thoughts on this? And are we seeing a change in this type of trade relations? Yes. So this is a key question. Historically, this has been the case. And I think for the most part, it remains for the most part like that today, just because of legacy issues, you know, 
path dependency, many rich countries, particularly European, have benefited from this extractive model. Right? That is clear. And they continue to do so today. And you know, France being the obvious example there, that is important to mention. Um, but that said, I think there's two things to, to look into. And um, one is, I think, the growing capacity of governments, but more important than that, also the just the, the the increased recognition within African leaders, whether it's in the private sector or in, or in government and in, in the political sphere or the government sphere, of the importance of um, moving away from an extractive model. Even though many people on the continent still benefit from it, but there's also an equally growing segment that recognizes that that transition is crucial. Otherwise, we're just stuck in this poverty trap, basically. So I think that's the most powerful thing that is the most powerful driver, because ultimately development is always homegrown. It's never imported. And so ultimately it's about it's about Africans and African leaders, African youth, African people to actually recognize that. And I think um, that 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 is happening. Um, the second thing is I do think within richer countries, um, there is a segment of people who recognize this and who are trying to change things, even though um, it is very hard. So there's some of the initiatives, um, some people pushing some of the initiatives on partnerships with um, um, with with uh, with African countries come with this intent. For an, an example of that is the is the current U.S. effort um, and the, the U.S. Africa Summit in December. I do think came from a, a good place there to try to shift the partnership from being one of extraction. And likewise, the US to Africa relationship was also about extraction. It's not just Europeans, the US was as well. But I do think there is a, a shifting need in Washington to recognize um, the need for that partnership to be much more of a win-win, recognizing that Africa is, you know, it's, it's where the f- future growth of the world's population and income is going to come from. Um, um so I think there is that recognition, but it's very hard to change, you know, to change vested interests, certain uh, entrenched positions. There, but there are some positives happening with the tech sector, for example, is a primary example. Within agro-processing, there's uh, more investment in value addition. Some areas of manufacturing, really China is playing a big part in, in that um, as well. Um, so there is some shifts. And I think fundamentally, though, that doesn't come from a, there are some people who do it because they are generally interested in equality issues development, but that's a minority of people, unfortunately. The greater driver of things there is geo is geopolitics, basically, and geoeconomics, right? And um, 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 and that's as I said, it remains extractive. And I think the extraction element of it, I think, you know, the city of London, to be honest, you know, there, if you talk to uh a banker, uh, you know, uh, an investment banker in the city of London. Anything they talk about that's Africa related is about is about you know their what you know what they can make off uh, you know investing in the firms invested in Africa who are on the FTSE or so on who are like you know Extrata and you know Glencore and these types of companies right, um, BHP, Pillington, Rio Tinto. That still like dominates the yes. sort of scene, um, but there is also a. A bit of a move. Um, I think countries like Germany, the Netherlands is also a positive example where they've seen that there's a benefit for their industry, their manufacturing industry, the Netherlands, you know, agriculture industry, their their banking sector, thinking of Rabobank as an example, where they have an interest, a vested interest in African transformation. And I think that's the area to um and same with Chinese investors as well, who want to see African growth. Um 
uh, as well, not just sort of extract resources, but they do have an interest in African industrialization for their own benefit, but they do. So that's the win-win part, right? So the, so I think that's the bit that we need to um, build on, but it, it's still nascent and still relatively small compared to that sort of behemoth of the last 400 years of extractive geoeconomic, uh, geoeconomics with Africa. Um uh, but 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 I think it's important to recognize that positive side and those people in the polit in governments and in the private sector that have an interest in African empowerment. Even though at the end of the day, as I said, it depends on Africans, not on them. Uh, but in terms of facilitating it, I think that's important. Fantastic. You touched on the key point that I'd like to go into more detail. With value addition comes economic growth, sustainable development and job creation, which effectively widens the tax base. Can you detail, I guess, from your perspective, what the importance of widening the tax base in Africa is? Yeah, it's crucial. It's fundamental. So a lot of the negative economic news, although it feeds into political instability quite a lot, and it feeds a lot into security instability, if you think of the you know, kidnappings rate in Nigeria, for example, or the instability in the Sahel. Yes. Terrorist groups have been able to gain a lot of traction because they can offer you three times a salary than being a farmer. So widening the tax base is critical um, so that the government can build a social contract with the people, can deliver the welfare services, the public services, whether it's infrastructure or whether it is healthcare, education, um, social protection, um, etc. Building that trust um, and that that there's a contract uh, between the people and the government is crucial, um, so that there is a positive relationship between the two, and likewise with the private sector. Without that broadening of the tax base, you have governments that are, you know, every year is a fiscal crisis. Basically, every year the minister of finance and his team, his or her team, are struggling to make ends meet, and so they end up squeezing. The few firms that are formal, they end up squeezing them more and more for revenues, which um, undermines private investment on the one hand. And on the other hand, those firms that can provide those revenues tend to be big mining firms, for example, um, or firms that have dominant positions in the economy. But that doesn't enable you then to open up the economy to others. Um, So many people then prefer to remain in the informal sector uh, rather than formalize. Um, and so government keeps chasing its tails. The, in the area of fiscal policy, the common area that the World Bank and others have rightly pushed in the last 20 years has, on the go- economic governance side has been public financial management. And a big part of that is domestic resource mobilization. And that's exactly what they mean. It's just that I think, unfortunately, they think of that not in a way linked to industrial policy, um, which I think is a problem. But domestic resource mobilization means how do you reduce dependency on external, on aid and external debt and increase the dependence of governments on local taxes, which is a fundamental part of government credibility, government state capability. So so it's really important to widen the tax base so that you have government legitimacy and government can build the capability it needs to deliver what people require it to do for them. Fantastic. So we've discussed the importance of widening the tax base and value addition. You know, all of this sounds probably a lot easier said than done, as it does require the coordination of multiple enablers such as land, roads, energy, market development, technology and regulations. So what are some of the challenges that you've seen whilst you've been embedded in African governments in terms of coordinating all of these enablers in Africa? 
Yes, that's a very good question. There are big challenges. It is difficult. Um, I think the biggest single challenge, in my view, is what we call the political economy, which basically means people who have, uh, you know, who make their money, to put it crudely, people who make their money from the status quo and then being politically powerful, that they back the party or they back this presidential candidate and then expect things in return. And the things they expect in return are basically the status quo, right? Which is the high barriers to entry and that type of the extractive economy, the import-based um, oligopoly uh, uh, type situation. That, I think, is the by far the biggest barrier because what it does is it prevents, um, you know, it prevents the government that then comes into place, the new cabinet, for example, from having the, the space to um, implement policies that open up the economy for others, um, as well as reducing their incentive, actually, to invest in, you know, the ability of the standards laboratory to properly test your product so that it can be exported, right? Because that's not really what those other guys are asking for. They don't really want need that. Um, they just need you to give them that their license, their preferential license, so they can have an, uh, a monopolistic or oligopolistic position in the market. So that, I think, is by far the biggest challenge, which um, many governments uh, and many progressives uh, uh, face. I think you can extend that to the international scene as well. So the, the global, ge ge that extractive geoeconomic and, and extractive geopolitical relationship by the international community also, I think, typically worsens that as well because it reduces policy space, you know, and in various ways, all the conditionalities that come in, I'll give you aid if you do A, B, C, D, or um, uh, they haven't really been conducive to government coordinating itself. Some of this happens also inadvertently, um, just the way that, country, you know, governments depend on aid from external agencies mean that they're more responding to, you have one ministry responding ultimately to what, you know, the UN food agencies in Rome want and another one responding to what the Geneva-based trade organizations want and another one responding to Washington and so on, rather than responding to a, cent you know, a coordinated government strategy to transform the economy. And so it ends up very disjointed. Um, so I think that's also another another ch a second challenge that comes into play. And then a third set of challenges is around uh, capabilities uh, within government. Um, um, the amount of, you know, if you're a minister trying to change things or a head of the investment agency or whatever, because historically a lot of these key economic ministries have been underinvested in the investment promotion agencies, the ministries of trade and industries are very underinvested in um, then you don't have people that you can rely on to do the research, do the briefings, do the you know, do the that groundwork that you need to do to drive policy into place. So you end up relying on a handful of people rather than on 50 people. And that handful of people ends up overworked, without bandwidth, without uh, time to do anything. You yourself as president, prime minister, minister, you're also, um, uh, you only have, you know, 10% of your time, typically, there's a random number, but more or less, to do the strategic things you need to do. The other 90% of your time is spent you know, on administrative issues, putting out fires, firefighting, um, managing the politics, because you'll have all sorts of people, senators and religious leaders and business leaders and you name it, and, and donors and international people all asking you for A, B, C, D. And you can't ignore them all, because if you do, you'll be out of a job. So you've got to 
manage the politics, you've also got to do the international diplomatic stuff. So the amount of resource you have, your own time and your own team, um, as well as people within the bureaucracy to actually drive um, your agenda into place is very limited. And likewise, then you also have obviously the internal politics. You'll have part of the bureaucracy that wants you to fail, right? Because they're of another, because they were put there by the previous party or whatever. And so they're not aligned to your agenda. And all of these things come into play, which makes it very, very difficult for governments to coordinate themselves around um, around this. So th- I think those would be the three biggest challenges that that play a part. There are ways to sort of address that. And that's where industrial policy becomes critical. Um, but those are the big challenges, I think. An interesting point that you mentioned is that a huge challenge is people that make their money from the status quo sometimes can influence government. Is corruption still an issue within African governments? Well, yes, it is an issue. But where I disagree with people is that it's a binding constraint. And I don't think it is. I mean, basically, and I mean, maybe we can argue about Switzerland or whatever, but um, there basically is not really any country in the world that developed without corruption. Corruption is a is fundamentally about rent seeking and rent seeking is always there. And the thing to recognize is that corruption has two sides of it. There's the cost, which is big and it's a problem. But there's also a benefit, not a, and it's not a positive benefit, but there is a benefit, there's an outcome. And there's been lots of research into this by people like Mushtaq Khan and, and others. The thing is, countries that actually developed, the United States developed with lots of corruption and still has corruption today. But even if you look at the early days, you know, in New York City and how that city developed, etc., a lot of it came off the back of this. So what's really important is to understand, is to go a level deeper than corruption and understand, okay, to fight corruption, The way to do that is by building institutions, building institutions, meaning rules, and then rules that are enforced. And that's where you then need organizations, whether it is your judicial system or whether it is your, you know, just better accounting practices within ministries, audit systems, all of these structures into place. But the function needs to work. Now, thing is that in order for the leadership, because the leadership that invests in these institutions to want to do that um, and to invest in their capability, yes, some of it will come from pressure by the population, by the youth protesting, etc., to change things, right? But ultimately, it comes from, it's not just about Africa, it's about vested interests and where there is a vested interest for the capability of that institution to be built. And the problem with the extractive economy, both the local extractive economy and the oligopolistic import-based economy that we do, many African countries depend on, as well as the problem with the West and its extractive approach to Africa, it just creates no vested interest to invest in these capabilities because they're not needed for you to make money, right? And actually it's better if there is opaqueness because like that, I can, you know, I'm powerful and I can pick up the phone and call the minister, but these other guys can't, right? Because they're not, they don't have that same power. So it's those dynamics which fundamentally allow for corruption to be a problem. And so we need to look at different types of corruption, as you and you and Ang has done uh, in her most recent book on China, but also look at how we gradually build those interests so that both the private sector and the government have a vested interest in institutions working because it benefits their business model and it benefits obviously their political agenda as well. Um, that's a critical um, a critical factor. And that played a part also in these other contexts as well uh, that I mentioned before, Bangladesh. Um, you know, highly corrupt country, but doing, but it's the world leader in garments and textiles. 
um, Cambodia as well, highly corrupt country, but it's doing really well in rice, doing really well in textiles, going into electronics, etc. Interesting, interesting. You mentioned to fight corruption, we need to build new structures and institutions that work. But to achieve that requires a lot of change. So are African governments as resistant to change as is often perceived? Or is it more a case of institutional limitations? Well, I think it's a bit of both. So this is why I keep coming back to a lot of the problem is the political economy and the extractive nature of the economy. Because when you have an extractive nature, then you don't your vested interest, whether you're the business that's doing that mining or doing the dominant you know, importer of fish into the country or whatever it is, or you're the politician that benefits from those businesses because they fund your campaign and they support you in your political agenda, then you have an interest to keep that status quo, right? Because that's, that's what has given you the power and that's what's allowing you to sustain the power. And then that leads to underinvestment in institutional and organizational uh, capabilities. So the trick is really how do you allow people to make money? Because people will always try to take care of their family and improve their income and so on, um, as human nature. So how do you allow people to make money? But in a way where in order for them to make that money, it requires that investment in organizational and institutional capabilities, as well as put, you need to put pressure from the population demanding more accountability and so on, as is happening in many countries through the democratic system and, and other systems as well, the internet and all of that, social media and, and so on. That's important, but fundamentally it's about where the economy and the politics align to invest in that institutional capability. And that's, again, why value addition is important, because sectors that have are adding value require more institutional capability. They require less corruption and they require things to work better. They require that standards lab, right? If I want to develop a product and have it accredited in standards lab so I can export it to wherever and get my certificate of, of quality, uh, my ISO 9001, whatever it is, then I need the standards lab to work. So I need to demand the government to fix that standards lab so that we can we can export. Um, so that so that that is the alignment of that vested interest, which is the crucial bit, and that then leads on to. I think there are many people in government that want to see that change, um, but they know that you know they have to play the game, otherwise they're out of a job, right? And they don't have an income and their family, you know, they can't send their daughters to school or whatever it is. Um, um, and likewise, the private sector as well. But that's where the facilitation and the focus needs to come in because the system has just been built historically since colonial times to be um, an extractive one. You mentioned that many people in government want to see that change. So if we go back to the work that you're doing, whilst being embedded in several African governments, do you believe that there is sufficient change taking place within African governments? And if so, what is driving or shaping that change? Yes, I do think there is that change happening. And I think in this, it's always easy for people to be pessimistic about this thing and to say, oh, nothing's working and all our leaders are bad. And, you know, there's always that rhetoric out there. But it's important to take a historical perspective to understand where countries are coming from. And I, my view is that, you know, in the 60s, when most countries got independence, it was a negative state of institutions because of what colonialization left behind in terms of patronage systems and extractive economy and so on. Shifting that is really, really hard, um, um, especially when you don't have a strong bureaucratic capability in place, you don't have a strong local private sector in place, etc. 
then it's very hard to shift that. So in the context of where countries started, and also in the context of what we said at the beginning, that basically Africa has been deprived of industrial policy, smart industrial policy between the, the 70s until until you know 10, 5, 10 years ago, it was deprived of that. So if you factor that into play, uh, you know, and, and sort of all the problems of the Washington consensus and that we're familiar with, then I think that there is those because those had the big cost, right? Including what I mentioned of that weakness in the ministries of finance, in the ministries of trade and industry from a technical standpoint. I mean, uh, the weakness on the technical standpoint. Then I think things are changing given all of that sort of difficult stuff. Um, and not put on top of that difficult political situations as well, some conflicts in various countries, ethnic issues in various countries, all of that, um, uh, low technological access in many countries. One is a positive change. So one is internet and, and technology, which is which is improving access to information and having a positive effect overall. I think a second one is education. I think you have people within the elite group, people that are able to and do become ministers or advisors to the presidents and all of that, those types of positions, there are people who are better, have a better understanding of what works and also better able, are increasingly pushing back where they need to push back on the international community or push back on certain um, uh, certain extractive industries and things like that. Um, and pushing this narrative of industrialization, validation, you know, the continental free trade agreement is all. So I think all of that, there is a dynamism within there at the political level, also at the technocratic level as well, and also at the business level as well, where you've got lots of young entrepreneurs doing startups and doing, you know, um, I mean, Lagos is a prime example of that, but it extends to not just Nairobi and so on, but across many capitals, Senegal, Dakar, and um, Abidjan, and, you know, and Lusaka and so on. There's, there's, there's an entrepreneurialism there. So I think it's this, that's a key driver of this change. Um, and fundamentally, there's also other factors. I mean, shocks from commodity price shocks um, that we saw in 2014, for example, that put a lot of countries up against the wall. Pandemics from Ebola to, to COVID um, uh, as well, the war in Ukraine, all of these things, climate change and causing rain failures. And people seeing the impact of, you know, of uh, um, rain failures and of drought and so on firsthand. All of this is sort of mixed with these other factors is also, a, I think, a big driver of that change. And so as a result, you're also seeing many, um, um, uh, many people in government and being brought into government as junior cabinet members or even as senior cabinet members. But they're young, maybe not necessarily. Some of them are young in age, but some might be young at heart. Um, and, and progressive being brought in to 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 drive uh, to drive change. Governments still have to manage the political. It's always a political game, right? It's always about political survival, political agenda. Um, but within that context, there's more happening. I think it's important to see the progress within that broader context. And when you see it in that historical way and in that contextual way, um, I think it, I think there's a lot of positive. So. I, Simple example, if you look at also from the economic side, if you look at trade data, what Africa is exporting, traditionally it's always been three or four, you look at a bunch of countries, three or four raw commodities, right? It might be gold or it might be uranium, it might be oil, it might be, and then maybe there's some, you know, there's a bit of, you know, cocoa or there's, or, or there's a bit of, you know, palm oil or whatever. But now you're actually starting to see quite a lot of different exports happening uh, for more products and more value-added products. It's still at a low base. 
So it, so it doesn't have that effect on the macro situation. And that's why still you have all this negative news of debt, debt crises in Ghana and Zambia and so on. But it is happening uh, and it's growing. This is a change from 10 years ago. So that's reflecting progress both at the entrepreneurial level, private sector level, as well as progress in the on the government side of things. There's many cases of governments doing things better overall than they used to in the 90s and the 80s and so on. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Jonathan. So you've detailed that we are seeing a positive rate of change and dynamism, which is shaping the future. So if we look at the current, I guess, context in terms of the global economic downturn we're seeing in terms of rising inflation, depleting foreign exchange, devaluation of many African currencies, has this impacted the work that you're currently doing? No, not really. Um, the work that I do and this work on industrial policy is is about the structure of the economy. It's not about cyclical stuff. Of course, the cyclical stuff, which is what most people, especially macroeconomists and politicians and, and so on, t- and tend to give attention to. And fair enough, because it is you know, what's front of mind. But fundamentally, it doesn't change the equation underlying the base of the economy. Right, this bit is the top of the pyramid and is a symptom of the cyclical stuff and the, these crises we're seeing, and how, and the ability of countries to manage shock, external shocks such as the impact of the war on Ukraine and the impact on fertilizer prices and inflation and so on, is a symptom of the, the base. And so, what, but what what industrial policy is about is about shifting the base. Of course, you can only really shift the base um, by playing understanding both what you need to do for long-term change because this is not a five-year project right this is a 50-year transition exercise um but shifting the structure of economies um so you have to have that in mind but you can't be oblivious to the what's in front of us right now so you've got to uh, typically what it does though is it creates opportunity because it flags at um it brings attention more to the structural change because ministries of finance then say oh we really need to uh, boost our exports now because we have this big forex crisis. So which way can we boost exports? So it creates that window that you then need to exploit in a positive sense to get more political momentum between these types of reforms that can really shift the economy. So your work hasn't changed, which is very, very interesting to know. So in terms of what you do, not really changing with the current global economic mood, what are some of the positive trends within what you're doing that you're seeing with regards to African governments and the way that they operate? Yeah, I think it's there's more recognition particularly from the top, but also at local level and looking at subnational governments as well, which is important not to someone to pay attention to, whether it's a city level or the counties in Kenya or the states in Nigeria or whatever. Um, but at the level of the leaderships, it could be a governor, it could be a president, there's there's stronger recognition of the importance of industrialization, value addition. And that's a key tenant of the Continental Free Trade Agreement, which is really important because traditionally the trade discussion has been purely about trade. But what it's basically done is raised exports, sorry, raised imports, double as much as it raised exports, which is not sustainable. Um, So it's shifting. So I think there is that recognition at that level, um, even in terms of macroeconomic planners, ministries of finance, ministries of economic planning um, are also recognizing it more. Investment agencies, for example, are being strengthened. You can think of, I mean, the Ethiopian Investment Commission, the 
Rwandan Development Board, the um, uh, even Ghana, the, the Ghana Investment Promotion Center. There's various examples of strengthening of these entities. Um, shifting of ministries of agriculture, I think, is important. There's still been traditionally been very, let's say, very um, more of a social protection agency, if I can put it that way, than a, than an economic development agency, and that it's been more about um, you know uh, food security from a traditional production sense and from a from a um, from a patronage sense, right? Giving out fertilizer bags and so on, more for political reasons than, more, of course, by hoping to have an impact on maize yields or whatever. But there is a bit of a shift there to recognize that ministries of agriculture need to work with ministries of trade on the value addition side, on moving up the value chain. So this term, things, the terms like value chain has become a buzzword um, when across more across government in a way that it wasn't 10 years 10 years ago it would be used by a few people now it's been used by three times the amount of people um and that's important i think because it's about that sort of rhetoric on we need to move up the value chain and not just be happy with our raw cocoa exports or our raw tea exports or whatever so i think that narrative i think is really um it is gaining ground and it is an important trend to look into the challenge those challenges i mentioned before remain and those remain very difficult and on top of that, also the rapid rise in expectations and of welfare of people, which is putting lots of pressure on governments and sometimes probably too much pressure on governments to expect them to deliver much more than anybody realistically can. I think, you know, every time we get to elections, there's always um, and someone good, someone that people like is elected. The expectations are always through the roof and they're always unrealistic. And that backfires because then there's no way any human can you know, transform an economy like, I don't know, Malawi, for example, in uh, in two years, um, just because it's been set for like, you know, 100 years in a certain way, you can't change it overnight in two years. So sometimes it creates that unrealistic pressure, which which detracts governments from doing the good work they need to do. Um, but for the most part, there are those positive trends at play, which is important to pay attention to so that we can strengthen them why recognizing that the challenge still remains. It's not a one battle in any way. Awesome, awesome. So you've given us a comprehensive overview of the positive trends that you're seeing. So if we look at Africa's future, from a government perspective, where do you see Africa in five years' time? That's a good question. Obviously, definitely a, a tough one to answer. There's two scenarios. One is like, there is a rhetoric out there of a, and the FT just wrote about this last week, right, of a lost decade because of the debt crisis, basically, and then the, the risk that that may have in terms of um, not so much a direct risk, but more in terms of a distraction or moving resources away from these sectors that are actually doing very well, but that are still younger and need nurturing. So that is a potential risk, and that's one scenario. I think another scenario is where you'll have more dynamism in certain sectors, as we've been seeing, the tech sector, creative industries, agro-processing, which is growing quite a bit, um, and also manufacturing as well. Um, my sense is that that these will continue to grow, but I do think that what really matters is when these sectors can get to a level where they're big enough that they have a macroeconomic impact. And by that, I mean that there are no longer forex crises, for example, or the current the currency doesn't need to be devalued every three years, right? Or I mean that inflation is not a problem because markets are competitive, you're able to produce competitively at a at a better price, right? 
Um, and so you can manage those external shocks much better because you've got also your own fertilizer production capability, right? Or your own food production capability that I mean, there's less reliance on imported inflation. And likewise, that has an impact on debt because you're widening the tax base, right? So those are the macro impacts we're looking for. But to get to that level, I do think that you need, it's a question of decades, it's not a question of years. And that's where you need that sustained attention on these sectors rather than just a short-term cycle, which is always the risk. And that's the risk of that uh, lost decade scenario. Um, But I think there will be these ups and downs and there might easily be a lost decade. But fundamentally, I think that these sectors, because it's a matter of natural course and uh, people know that to transform and to change their lives, the lives of their communities, of their families and their country, that's the way to go. I do think that would be a driving force that will get us to those macroeconomic impacts, as well as the poverty reduction and so on in 30 to 40 years, I do think. But with these ups and downs and with these crises, obviously, the less short term crises we have, the better, because then you're really able to build that momentum. But ultimately, I do think that things will get there. There obviously are other risks at play, climate change and how, you know, the gravity of the impact there, particularly on rain. Rain is the main thing because so much agriculture is not irrigated. And there's so little investment going into irrigation, unfortunately, um, that those risks are pretty big. The you know African yields are just, agricultural yields are just far too low. And we know that you need to get to a certain level and get to processing to really transform the continent. And then you, you can get an industrial revolution of first order. You can also get the fourth industrial revolution to scale up much more as well. So those remain risks, but I do think it's a sort of, upward trajectory in the next 50 years but with these booms and booms and busts along the way will continue for some time so at the five-year scenario might at the macro level i think could be gloomy but once you look at that underlying long-term trend below that cyclical up and down that most people look at then i think there's a very positive story there thank you for that jonathan so if you look closer to home where do you see yourself? What will you be doing in five years' time? Will you still be focusing on African economies or would you transition to something else? No, I mean, I'm, as long as I'm able to, my, my goal is to continue to, uh, supporting African economies as best I can. Um, how, I don't know. But uh, my main objective really is to try to set up a mechanism, whether a standalone or part of another entity, that is a support structure for leaders that are trying to implement good industrial policy. By that, I mean, if you become the minister of industry and trade or even a chief of staff or the economic advisor to the president or whatever, and you really have a vision for developing sectors that can create jobs, value addition, et cetera, who do you turn to? I mean, you've got your people in government and you may have your World Bank there and your McKinsey there, or whatever, but they don't really go with along with you in the journey. They're not really a sort of trusted advisor that you can re- rely on and count on to help you implement your vision, your own vision. So my goal is really to set up a structure of some sort of program that can provide this type of support at a certain scale to deliver impact. Is okay, let's have, for five years, we'll help you really transform your soya industry. So you're doing so, you know, large-scale soya processing within the next five years or large-scale textile processing in the last next five years and provide the right type of support to help you and help your government actually uh, achieve that by coordinating with the, with the relevant private sector, attracting the right investment, et cetera. And then I think if we can scale up that type of support, the demand is there from people who are in government um, to do that more. Uh, but there aren't the structures, I think, in my view, to provide that type of support in a way that we know works 
and can deliver yeah proper impact and have them deliver the impact they want to that sounds like a amazing and much needed initiative and it's one i hope to see happen so definitely definitely looking forward to keeping in touch and seeing if it's an idea that comes into fruition thank you very much yes uh, i hope so too well, time will tell but uh, thanks for your support and we'll see if we can get there i'll, I'll let you know <laughs> quote of the week as people we often have quotes mantras proverbs or affirmations that keep us going when times are hard or when times are good. Do you have one that you can share with us today? Um, Sure, and this one actually is African, but I I think of it most weeks, um, which is if you want to go far, you go with others as opposed to going fast where you can go alone. I think it's it's meant to be the other way around, but you know what I mean? Um, So that's something that I keep in mind a fair bit because I think it's important in how we, not just going alone, but working with people to have that scale of ambition that we all have where we think we can add value to this exercise. Um, It's important to work with others, which will mean you go slower, but you go further. Fantastic. I do like that one. And I am a big believer in collaboration and partnership. So yeah, it's definitely one that I do like. So thank you for sharing that with us, Jonathan. As we're coming to the end of today's conversation, I was just wondering if you have any closing remarks, final course to action for people who are interested in the work that you're doing. Yes, for sure. I think, um, I mean, my view is that you know, having looked at so many different countries and how many different countries have transformed and really empowered their people on that national scale, it's really been where they've managed to get this equation right. And it's very hard to do. And sometimes it's about luck. It's about opportunism. Um, but I think the main thing is recognizing that there are, despite all we see in the news and all the lack of confidence in the politicians of the day and so on, which is a common thing to think about and to perceive, But there are many people in government that really do want to drive that change, that are passionate about their country, that could be abroad or in the private sector or elsewhere in an international organization, you know, earning, you know, triple their salary or even sometimes 10 times their current salary. But they've decided to serve their country and they are doing it not for their personal gain. They are doing it because they want to see the transformation of their country for their own children's sake, for their own people's sake. And I think it's really important that we scale up support to those people because they do not get the support they need to deliver impact. And a lot of them end up leaving those jobs disappointed that they underachieve. And it's not because they didn't try, it's because it's hard. Um, And so that's why it's really important that we try to support them and their agenda because they are of the country. It's their country at the end of the day, but they are there. They are trying to change the system for the better. Um, So it's important not to be disparaging of them because they're working for ex-president that we don't like or whatever, but really understand the individuals and, and understand who's trying to drive change and really try to support them as in whatever way we can so they, their vision can come into play. Sometimes we might not agree with their approach or their tactics. We might say, oh, that's not going to be impactful or whatever. That's not going to work for the private sector and so on. But it's important to go along with them on the journey rather than say, no, that's not going to work and be too cynical about it. Because if so, we'll go nowhere. But it's important to support those people that are really trying to drive change in the government. This applies also in the private sector as well. Thank you for that. Fantastic way to close today's conversation, today's episode. Very insightful discussion. Thank you for being so candid and open about the work that you do. I've definitely taken away a lot of information from our conversation today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you for giving us your time today, Jonathan. 
Thank you very much, Tessa, for having me. It's been really a great pleasure talking to you today and all the best to yourself and for the continuation of this podcast going forward. Keep in touch and look forward to future communications, future conversations, future collaborations. Speak soon. Absolutely. Take care. Speak soon. Thank you to everyone who has listened and stayed tuned to the podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share or tell a friend about it. You can also rate review us in Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast. Thank you and see you next week for the Unlocking Africa podcast. 